Welcome to the Cashflow Ninja, the podcast sharing how to create and grow income streams and manage, multiply, and protect your wealth in the new economy. Are you tired of trading your time for money? Do you desire freedom today instead of retirement in 10, 20, or 30 years? I'm MC Lobsher, and this is the Cashflow Ninja. Hello, Cashflow Ninjas. MC Lobsher here, and welcome to another episode of the Cashflow Ninja. I have a great show for you today. In today's show, we're going to look at the education of a speculator. My guest in this episode is Lobo Tigre. Lobo Tigre is the founder, CEO, and principal analyst and editor of Louis James LLC. He researched and recommended speculative opportunities in KC Research Publications from 2004 to 2018, writing under the name Louis James for privacy reasons. While at Casey Research, he learned about the newsletter business from Casey co-founder David Gallant and a resource of speculation from the legendary speculator, Doug Casey himself. Prior to his work at Casey Research, uh, Lobo was a writer and publisher involved in numerous ventures. In 1998, he published his first novel, Y2K, The Millennium Bug. In 2012, he co-authored Doug Casey's first book in almost two decades, Totally incorrect. This was followed by another book co-authored with Doug Casey in 2014, Right on the Money. Lobo's plans for several new books going forward, both fiction and non-fiction. If you're interested in joining our investors group, you can go to cashflowninja.com forward slash investors group and fill out an application form and or email me at infocashflowninja.com to start the discussion to see if you're a good fit for our group. And if you're living in the Philadelphia, Bucks County, and Southern New Jersey area, we are hosting a live investors meetup event every month in Newtown, Pennsylvania. For more information on the monthly event and information on how to join us at our next live event, you could go to cashflowninja.com forward slash events. If you're like many of the listeners of the show, you're always looking for unique ways to protect and grow your hard-earned capital. But sometimes that's easier said than done. The key to investing late in the cycle is identifying favorable opportunities on a risk-adjusted basis. That's where our friends at ASIM Capital come in. Since 2011, ASIM has helped more than 300 accredited investors allocate more than $20 million to mobile home parks, cell storage, and workforce housing due to the ability to generate asymmetric returns while protecting their investors' portfolios. If you're interested in learning more, head over to asymcapital.com. That's A-S-Y-M-Capital.com to get instant access to their investment offerings. MC Lobshire, the host of the Cashflow Ninja podcast and also the president and chief wealth and investment strategist of Producers Wealth, where we help our clients integrate cashflow banking, also known as infinite banking, with their business and investments. If you're interested in learning more about how we create strategies that integrate cashflow banking and investments to turbocharge them, you can access a video series at yourownbankingsystem.com. That's yourownbankingsystem.com. Lobo, welcome to the show. Very happy to be on, MC. Yeah, so glad to connect. I've been a very big fan of all of your work and all of the things uh, that you've done in your career. So very, very excited to connect. Appreciate you coming on. Uh, for our listeners that's not familiar with you and what you do, um, can you share a little bit about your background and journey with them? 
Sure. Uh, well, the first thing to say is that some of your listeners may actually know who I am or have heard of me, but under a different name. And that is that I uh, was basically Doug Casey's due diligence guy for metals and mining. And I, I kicked rocks and picked stocks for Doug Casey for almost 14 years at Casey Research under the name of Louis James. Uh, so there is a fair amount of awareness in, in the sort of investment universe or the greater Casey universe, if you will, of my work for, for Casey Research. Um, Lobo Tigre is my real name. And now that I've gone independent, uh, so my new publication is called The Independent Speculator, which, by the way, I asked Doug if he was okay with that, you know, a little riff there <laughs> off of his theme, and he was fine with it, took it as the tribute that it is. So, but the, the hallmark of that is full transparency, and I just thought that a pen name was inappropriate. And where this all ties together is I had known Doug as a, as a fellow libertarian anarchist rabble rouser for many years. I had met him through an online interview rather like this in the early 90s and we were like long lost intellectual brothers so we've been friends and then when he and david galland founded casey research in 2004 they needed a writer i was available you know it was match made in heaven uh, i really enjoyed uh getting to work with my friend learn you know really that was it it was learning everything that he could teach me about finance speculation investment even the you know the rocks and all that it was just uh proverbial drink from a fire hose. And here I am now 15 years later, uh, you know, bringing all that I've learned to as many people as I can. One of the things that I really enjoyed and uh, you guys did so well, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners enjoyed that as well, was the conversations with Casey, which was eventually turned into a book, right? Can you yeah. give us a little bit of an insight of how that developed and came about? Because it was such a treat to read, read just you guys just sharing ideas and going on it and discussing, you know, the hot topics of the week or of the month or what was going on globally. Yeah, well, that was a fun project. And as I say, it helps that Doug and I were friends to begin with. And that's what really made it not just a stilted interview, sit down every week, tell us what you think is important. They really were conversations with Casey. It was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, actually, to give credit where due, that was Porter Stansberry's idea. He, he's a big fan of Doug's and wanted to hear more from him. But, you know, to... Doug is always traveling around the world. He's got his adventures going, his polo ponies or whatever he's up to. It's hard to get him to sit down every week and write an article. Right. So doing these conversations, uh, basically the production was on me. Um, and it was easy to just grab Doug via Skype or, or whatever. In today's world, you know, he could be in Zimbabwe or whatever, and we could have a conversation. Hey, what do you see, Doug? Uh, so, yes, that was a lot of fun. Um, and it's probably one of the things that I miss the most. It's, it's peculiar. Now that I'm independent and, um, you know, what Casey Research involved in a direction to where we couldn't trade in what we wrote about. And, and that meant that I couldn't really tell Doug what I was researching for the letter because he might buy it. And then, I, then I couldn't write about it. Uh, so now it's odd. I can communicate more on the substance of what we talk about, what we work about with Doug. Uh, but obviously, I'm not publishing with him on a weekly basis, and I really miss that because it was fun. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you're in Puerto Rico. Um, there's There might be a lot of us, and me especially, that's very interested to hear a little bit more about what's going on there because there seems to be a lot happening in Puerto Rico. 
there's uh, there's obviously some tax incentives there. They're they're trying to create an environment for business owners and businesses going. Uh, can you share a little bit more about that and your experiences down there on the on the island of Puerto Rico? Sure. Uh, the first thing I have to say is this is not real expatriation. So for people who like the permanent tourist idea that Doug was one who promulgated. I, you know, you, you have your bank accounts in one country, your employment in another country, your residence in another country, and it makes it really hard for any one country to, to grab you and tax the bejesus out of you. If that's what you want to do, and you're a U.S. taxpayer, you know, Puerto Rico may not be what you're looking for. This isn't real expatriation. It is part of the United States. The United States Post Office delivers the mail. You can even drink the water here. Um, you know, it, it is part of the U.S., on the other hand, that same thing makes it kind of interesting, particularly for people who have family in the U.S. or ties that prevent them from leaving. They can't really expatriate. They're not ready to turn in their U.S. passport and be done with the United States. Uh, this is kind of a baby step in that direction. You're still in the United States, but you're definitely somewhere else where the language is Spanish and the tax rules are different. The crux of that is that uh, Puerto Rico has, for more than 100 years, Puerto Rican income has been exempt from the U.S. federal income tax. Now, that never really mattered before because Puerto Rican taxes were so high. <laughs> it was half a dozen ones, six of the other. It didn't matter. Uh, but after 2008, Puerto Rico really never recovered. They were crisis mode. And unlike Greece, they couldn't leave the union. Uh, or they couldn't print drachma or something and, and paper their way out of their troubles. So what can they do? You know, they, they couldn't print money, couldn't leave. They decided wow, maybe we'll try to attract money. Maybe we'll try to lower our taxes, be reasonable, and, and make money welcome here in Puerto Rico. So in 2012, they put these famous Acts 20 and 22 in. Uh, 20 is for corporations. It's the one that gives you, for an incented industry, a 4% corporate tax rate. And 22 is personal. It's on your capital gains and passive income, uh, which is very key for money managers. Uh, but even just on capital gains, if you're an investor, if you're a speculator, uh, you know, a zero capital gains rate until 2036 is a, a phenomenal benefit. Uh, personally, uh, my net tax burden, because you do have to pay some taxes, Puerto Rican taxes and so on. My net tax burden dropped by about 60% when I moved here from Washington State, which is one of those states with no state income tax. So very dramatic. The taxes, the tax benefits are real. You know, I've seen them, I've experienced them, and a lot of people are moving here to take advantage of it. You know, my colleague Peter Schiff, uh, Gordon Holmes is here, there's a whole crypto crowd growing up here. It's, it's, it's quite happening in that regard. Um, but I strongly urge people to think about what I started with. You know, this is not real expatriation. If you think you're going to get away from the IRS and never have to file a 1040 again, not true. Uh, on the other hand, if you, you know, don't want to completely go off to the far ends of the earth, this might be something for you. But everybody thinking about it should come here, check it out. Don't just stay in a five-star hotel and say, oh, this is nice. You know, rent a car, drive around, see the grunge, you know, the broken pavements and stuff. This is America's little slice of the third world. You know, things are getting better. But uh, you, if you're going to hate it, it's not worth it. You should come here and see the world Puerto Rico, you know. I, we love it. You know, there's coconuts I'm, I'm palm trees right outside the window right now on a beach. You know, we really like it, but it's not for everyone. And yeah, and that brings a lot of opportunities with a lot of folks moving there too. So if you're young and looking for a place in the world with, with a lot of opportunities, uh, there's folks there that's going to need services and products um, and experiences, right? 
um, as, as people startup incubator here. Yeah, absolutely. I've heard a lot of great things about it. You've mentioned about uh, the concept of being a permanent tourist, right? The perpetual traveler strategy as it, as it's been known and, and, and so forth. And um, it's a, you know, and, and maybe you can elaborate on exactly what it is and how the, the strategy changes your tax relationship. You're not you know, fleeing taxes. It just changes the relationship that you have with certain governments. But if you want to uh, dive into that a little bit and share a little bit more, appreciate that. Sure. Well, I mean, consider the Cyprus bail-in, right? If, if mm -hmm. you're pretty much tied to any one jurisdiction, then you're vulnerable to whatever that government does. And you can go government shopping and try to pick the best one. You know, say you pick Paraguay, which has, or Uruguay, very low, very low flat tax structures. Um, but then, you know, they may have a low tax, but they're kind of crazy socialistic and they may decide to put some other law in effect that you really are not comfortable with. It restricts you in some way. So the whole idea of the permanent tourist strategy is that by putting your eggs in different baskets, by diversifying your life across different jurisdictions, you make it harder for any one government to make your life impossible. Um, or you can, you know, reduce your taxes and or regulations by, uh, you know, doing your business in the most um, friendly regulatory climate, keeping your assets and your finances in the best financial climate. You know, um, that's sort. Of, that's the idea. It's theoretically possible that if you're really sort of couch surfing permanently and you're you're a tourist everywhere, you you don't have any permanent resident of any kind. You could get away with almost no regulation or no taxes. In practice, that's hard though. If you're if you're going to cross the border, you've got to have a passport. If you're going to have a passport, um, you know, some country has to issue it and there needs to be some at least pretense of connection to that country and the passport needs to be renewed. So if you just decide, oh, I'm, you know, tech with this at some point, uh, you need to come back to some government somewhere or your ability to hop between borders is going to be curtailed. And that's a, you know, sorry for all the anarchists out there who don't want to hear it. That's the sad fact of the world today. Um, but at least by the permanent tourism strategy, uh, you can pick and choose, mitigate, not put your, all your eggs in one basket. Um, and you know, as the global economy gets into scarier and scarier shape going forward, you know, this could be very, very important, especially when capital controls start coming in in a serious way to the West. Uh, already having yourself diversified is hugely advantageous. Yeah. No, absolutely. And the diversification strategy, we see, we see it already. I mean, all you have to do is open the newspaper and look at where big corporations incorporate themselves, where they keep their cash reserves, you know, where, you know, so they already do it. Apple, Google, Facebook, all these guys are already doing it. So there, there is a blueprint already for, for certain ways of doing that. Uh, another question that I had when you mentioned that, are you familiar with that Lieberland project that's out in Europe? Any thoughts? Well, uh, I, I sincerely wish them all the best of luck. Uh, a piece of land in the middle of Europe seems like a very unlikely place to be left unmolested if they actually start, you know, doing something of significance. You know, if that actually catches on, I can only imagine that one of the other powers that be will just crush them. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I just, you know, that's history, though. I'm not just right. a theory here. Uh, libertarian-minded folks have had similar ideas for many years. 
Uh, there's a very famous 70s uh, version of this called Minerva, where some folks got together and pulled some money together, really. They got a pretty serious effort. They, they found an atoll in the middle of the Pacific that was unclaimed, and they decided to start a new country there. They even printed their own coins or collector's items now. If you can find a, a Minerva coin, it's quite something. Um, and everything seemed to be going well. You know, they got they started they started to set up there, and it turned out the nearest government was uh, Tonga, and they sent the Tongan Navy, which consisted of an old surplus World War II PT boat with twin 50s or something on the front. Um, and so this gunboat shows up, very small gunboat, but gunboat nonetheless shows up and says, uh, this is Tonga, you're not welcome here. And that was the end of the Minerva project. Uh, it, uh, you know, for which the uh, Tonga will everlasting have my enmity for, for this, because you know, they didn't need to do that, but right. they did um, so what I'm saying is I'm all in favor of uh, risk diversification. I'm all in favor of shopping for governments, vote with your feet. I, I think that's a great way to try to rein the beast in. Um, but to actually try to set up your own government on this planet is really, really uh, difficult. And if successful, I think it's inviting retribution. So um, I wouldn't put all my eggs in that basket. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I was just curious. Um, that just came to mind when you when you spoke of that. And I did not know about the Minerva one. So that that's something that I learned. That's definitely something that I, I will take a look in, into. Um, you mentioned putting your eggs in a basket. And that's, I want to tie into the, the speculation and being a speculator. Um, what is your definition of a speculator? Well, I, I have to confess my Casey influence here. Though I have a modification on Casey. Uh, Casey says a speculator is a person who watches for government distortions in the economy, predicts the consequences, and positions himself to benefit. And I, I think that's a very good definition. Um, my, my nuance on that would simply be that the government isn't the only player that can create trends, powerful trends that have predictable consequences. It's when the government interferes in the economy, it's obviously so powerful, right? They have the legal capacity to really distort things, print a bunch of money, put regulations in place that push one industry in or out. So if you can predict these things, uh, you can make a lot of money. Uh, so, for example, you know, never mind inflation and all the normal stuff people think of in this regard, uh, but Doug uh, made a bunch of money when it was evident that the marijuana legalization movement was gaining steam. And Doug doesn't even smoke pot. He doesn't care about pot. <laughs> you know, he likes a good whiskey and a cigar, but he's not a pothead. But right. he could see this trend gathering momentum, a very powerful trend, and he positioned himself um, to make extraordinary gains. He, he's, he thought it was so strong that he actually bought some private companies, you know, back in the seed stage, which Doug, Doug hates private companies. You know, you don't have an exit point, but he was very convinced of this trend and he got in on some of the early players and he made out like a bandit. Um, so that's a, a classic example of speculation. Uh, we don't always get something that momentous, like a change, a legal change of that magnitude. But things happen in the marketplace. And, you you know, when you say, you, you, know, you know, look at this, they, how can they do that? Or, or this has to, this, there's no happy ending for this. When you see a situation like that, when you feel like, I know what's going to happen. Well, that's that's the holy grail in investment. You, 
You may be wrong. That's what makes it speculation. But you think you know the future. And any time that you can do that and be right, you can make a lot of money. Now, this is very different from just gambling, just saying, oh, what the heck, I'm throwing darts at the board. Uh, a speculator isn't just somebody who just takes chances. We do everything possible to study the situation, minimize risk, position ourselves for maximum benefit. It's a rational and very disciplined uh, endeavor. And it, honestly, it's not for everybody. They're very emotional people that they chase things, they buy high and sell low, they invert the formula for success. Uh, but it's not at all the same thing as, oh, I'm a speculator, I'm wildly doing whatever. That's not it. Yeah, I, I really like that example too, because as you mentioned, it's very unemotional, no, no emotions involved, and also you have to be very disciplined. So using the marijuana um, trend that's now, I mean, the walls are breaking, it's rolling out now in full steam ahead, right? But it, you could see this coming. So let's just say you were in the 90s, the, the middle, middle 90s, and you looked at all of this and say, well, this is going to end. This is how this is going to end. This is how much longer can they possibly keep, you know, keep this, the, the, the lid on this because there's just more and more pressure. There's more and more lobbying groups, quote unquote, uh, um, going after it. But you still had to wait almost 20 years for the walls to come completely break and the speculation to play out. So you really have to be very, very disciplined, have to have done your due diligence and your research. And sure, be let, let me jump in there, MC, because yeah. that's very interesting the way you frame that. I think this is really important. And it is something that I've learned from Doug is that, you know, theoretically that this had to happen in the same way we knew for decades before the Berlin Wall came down, that had to happen. Communism, mm -hmm. it's internal economic contradictions that just couldn't work. But who knew when, right? And it lasted far longer than anybody imagined. Yep. So knowing that it makes no sense for alcohol to be legal and pot to be illegal, right? You can predict that this could happen, but if you're too early and as an investor, a speculator, you know, too early is the same as being wrong. And this is something that I've seen from Doug is that he has a very keen sense of when things are really starting to happen. I remember when I first started working with him, I, I, he'd send me off to research something and I'd come back with my results and he'd look at that and say, oh, that's really smart, but this is what we're going to do, right? And he, you know, he'd just take all my math, you know, put it aside. And, and his sense of the trends was, was really vital. And when he got into the marijuana space, it wasn't in the 90s. It was when the first laws had already passed, right? It was already... Okay legalized in some places and you could see the movement building in Canada in particular and that's when Doug got in he he wasn't a, a visionary founder early on he mm -hmm. was somebody who got in when the momentum was clearly building right and there are a lot of things that you can look at that way um, we, we could talk all day about that but I think right. it's very important uh, particularly if we I know you want to talk about the economy and, and a lot of people have you know been expecting this big crash you know maybe the second half of the 2008 crash, you know, Doug himself has called it a giant eye of the storm and the second half is coming. But predicting that is very hard, right? Uh, you know, with all due respect to my friend Doug, you know, he's been wrong about exiting the eye of the storm for 10 years. That's a long time to be waiting for that one. Right, right, right. Uh, no, absolutely. And before we, we get to the economy, a couple of things about uh, being a speculator and the education of a speculator is there's a couple of things uh, from a principled standpoint that you've mentioned 
Um, just to tee you up on one of them is that the government, you can always bet that the government's going to yes. do the, <laughs> the yes. opposite of what they should do, right? What are some of the other things that, uh, that, you would, that you would put into the category with that as far as some principles and some guidelines for a speculator? Sure. Well, I think one of the ones this won't be a big surprise to anyone is that Mr. Market is emotional. I mean, even even Graham, who wouldn't have called himself speculator, uh, you know, he spent almost the entire book of the intelligent investor talking about market psychology. Uh, and this is a, a famous Doug Caseyism, right? You know, it all comes down to psychology. Uh, but this is important. If um, you know, markets overshoot. You know, they get overly optimistic. Things go manic. Things get overpriced. If objectively something is overpriced you know what's going to happen. You may not know the timing, but you know what's going to happen, and that's very powerful. And if something is objectively underpriced, you know what's going to happen. As an investor, to know what is going to happen is extremely important. Uh, the big mistake is to rush in and assume you know the timing. Uh, you know, To switch mentors here, as Rick Rule likes to say, never confuse the inevitable with the imminent. And this is a, a huge mistake that speculators make all the time. You know, oh, I know it's going to happen. Oh, I can see this. Oh, they printed all this money. We're going to have hyperinflation. Well, you may be right, but if you get the timing wrong, you lose money. So you're functionally wrong. So understand that Mr. Market is very emotional. Understand that markets overshoot and that you can capitalize on that intellectual, you know, turn that intellectual capital into financial capital. But you have to be very careful. Don't imagine that you time things. Be willing to place a bet. Like, I don't know how many years ago it was that Doug bought those pot stocks when they were private. It wasn't the 90s. Um, but it wasn't last year either. Right. It was a couple years ago, and he was willing to wait. He put money into it that he could afford to lose and wait to be right. One of the things that uh, when you mention about the emotions too, I think a classic example was in um, the cryptocurrency space where we saw a very, very big emotional overshoot. Uh, what was it, December of 2017 now? We're, yeah, yes. it, was, it was back then, but that, that, that's when people mortgage their houses, right? That's when the mania right. it just completely lost its mind. But as you mentioned, there were some folks that were early in the trend. They put some money aside into it that they can afford to lose like in 2013 or you know when people were making fun of it, saying it's like Disney tokens and stuff like that. Um, to eventually coming to that massive, massive emotional overshoot for for the market before it com, uh, came came crashing down. Yes, that's a classic example. And and by the way, that's, I'm not anti Bitcoin, but obviously yeah. if something goes that vertical like that. <laughs> you need a lot of value to come and backfill that to justify moving higher. And you know, it was uh, a, a clear sell signal. I think when you're hitting twenty thousand and people are saying, "Ah, oh, it's going to forty thousand, hundred thousand, it's going to a million. <laughs> uh, you know, that's a, that's a asymptotic, right? Yeah, um, clear sign. Yeah, absolutely. Can you speak to the regulatory function that speculate and uh, uh, that a speculator has? In the marketplace, because again, you know the uh, the speculators are usually painted as these yeah. evil folks that come in yeah. and take advantage of markets or people and so forth. Yes, yes. Well, uh, that's interesting that you bring it up because that goes from just the business of making money to the ethics, and uh, I think it's actually no coincidence at all that what is ethical is actually profitable, uh, as to the Gospel of Saint Ine. 
Um, but, it, but this really works. And the speculator shows this mechanism in process. Like the, the classic example would be somebody uh, warehousing gasoline or something, seeing some crisis coming or food or something that people desperately need and then selling it for very high prices later when the crisis hits. And this is painted as this evil person taking advantage of other people's misfortunes. Well, you could also look at that as an intelligent person who took a risk when nobody else thought it was smart and now being able to be a provider of last resort. And those people, they're willing to pay that gouged high price. Well, why are they willing to do that? Because they need it. They want it. They want what this speculator has more than they want the money. You know, he doesn't force them with a gun to do this. And if he hadn't done that and he hadn't stockpiled that and he or she wasn't willing to be, you know, dressed in black with a long curly mustache and wear a cape, um, you know, those people would have no gasoline. They would have no food. If the speculator hadn't been prescient enough to look ahead, make the right bet, take the financial risk and the expense to be that provider of last resort, there would be no provider of last resort. So you can see this as a, a regulatory function of the market. It's kind of like being a short seller, right? You think you see something other people don't do. And this applies discipline to the market. Right. right. And, and just in terms of prices, he's a buyer when other people are selling, limiting the downside. He's a seller when things go vertical. He's actually capping the upside and preventing it from going to the moon. You're listening to The Cashflow Ninja, the show helping people all over the world create monthly cash flow and achieve freedom today, not in 10, 20, 30, and or 40 years. This is a show where cash is not king, but cash flow is king. We will be right back after a word from our sponsors. My friend Dave Zook says, you can be conventional or you can be wealthy. Pick one. Dave and his team at The Real Asset Investor have syndicated many successful real estate and ATM projects over the last decade. Now his team has an exclusive opportunity for investors in the coal space. Do you want to be part of an energy project that takes conventional coal and cleans it up by extracting liquids while releasing almost zero emissions? The sale of these liquids can produce strong double-digit cash flow and aggressive tax benefits against ordinary income, all while using America's number one most plentiful resource in a responsible, efficient manner. Now that's non-conventional. For more information on this exclusive opportunity, you can visit therealassetinvestor.com or contact the Real Asset Investor team at info at therealassetinvestor.com. Are you having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the United States. Our simple proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Learn how to find the best deals by downloading your free copy of The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing at noradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. You're listening to The Cashflow Ninja, the show helping people all over the world create monthly cash flow and achieve freedom today, not in 10, 20, 30, and or 40 years. This is a show where cash is not king, but cash flow is king. Now let's return to our interview. Absolutely. And and you mentioned the short sellers too. I mean, that's where when they see corruption and they see mismanaged companies, 
they're doing everyone else a favor by doing that yes essentially yes, yeah. and, and pointing it out to short sellers is an important part of the market the problem with short sellers isn't that they're short i mean to every long there's a short we need to have shorts to our longs we need to have short sellers calling bs on bs the problem is when people short and distort right when mm -hmm. people publish something that's speculative or, or maybe even flat out untrue or fabrication they hide beside behind some anonymous website and publish something that's not true slam some stock they liquidate their shorts they're out and then everybody else is left to clean up the mess that's the problem with that is not the short selling the problem with that is lying right right absolutely um due diligence your forte right there and I'm sure there's there's a lot of stories there, great war stories for that. What are some of the biggest lessons that you learned doing due diligence? What are some of uh, the things that you can share as far as the checklist or maybe some guidelines for folks doing doing their own due diligence or or looking to do that, and uh, uh, especially in the resource sector that you operated in? Sure. Well, I could and probably someday will write a whole book on this. Uh, you can start with Doug Casey's eight or nine Ps. I'm not sure how many he has right now of resource <laughs> speculations. You Google search for that, you'll find it. You know, people, property, financing, all these different important things. Um, but the, I can boil it down very simply to um, don't delegate this. You should do your own due diligence. And okay, maybe you can't fly around the world and recognize rocks in the way a geologist would or something like that. But that doesn't mean you can't go to a conference and look the CEO in the eye and ask him, how much is that going to cost and how much money do you have in the bank? And if the guy looks like a deer in headlights, that tells you something. Anybody can do this, right? Anybody can Google the directors in management and see if you get a screen full of lawsuits and, and catastrophes in the past. Uh, or just you know, read the MDNA and the financial statements, you know, is there more money going into the ground to make a discovery or more money going into the office space? And, you know, I, I call that the, the, the T and A ratio versus the G and A ratio versus actual exploration. Anybody can do these things. Um, you just have to discipline yourself. There's that word again. Uh, one of my mottos is discipline pays. Um, and the good news is that most people are lazy. Therefore, all you have to do is embrace a little bit of discipline and you can outperform 80-20 rule, right? You can outperform the vast majority in the marketplace because most people just won't bother. Uh, I, real quick, I remember giving a lecture once at a, one of these big investment conferences, big room full of people, and I was saying something very like this. And somebody says, have you seen those financial reports for some of those companies? Some of those are 100 pages long. I looked at the guy and I said, you want to make a million dollars? Oh, yeah. I said, you want to make a million dollars and you're not willing to read a hundred pages? Uh, it's some powerful stuff right there because as you mentioned, it is. It is. Most people are lazy. So if you are one of the few that there are not and doing your own due diligence and taking the extra step, it's going to put you in, in a different category. The resource sector, let's touch, uh, go a little bit bigger in commodities. What are you seeing there currently right now as far as the, the asset cycle there and then also in your your area, um, uh, the resource sector. Sure. Well, I am going to say something here. And uh, for people who know me or have seen me in the past, they'll know that I don't always wave my arms and jump up and down and pound on the table and say, you got to do this, or this is the hottest opportunity. You sell a lot of copy by 
making bold predictions like that. You know, oh, gold's going down to $700. Remember that one? Yeah, exactly. Right? You know, that sells a lot of newsletters, but you disappoint people when you're wrong. Um, so I'm very, very reluctant to make uh, crazy, bold predictions. And I will say right now, the macro picture is very muddy. Right? You have this trade war with China, and you know, a couple of days ago, it looked like it was almost done, and now it looks like it's stepped back significantly. Who knows what will happen? This is really important for all commodities because China is the biggest consumer of basically almost everything. Right? You know, if, if China gets in trouble, that's bad for copper, that's bad for even you know, the energy minerals that are in short supply. Uh, it's bad for everything. Um, so, and I don't know what's going to happen. And nobody knows what's going to happen. Honestly, it, it, anybody who says, I know Trump's going to do this <laughs> or that, right? Nobody knows that. I don't think even Trump knows what he's going to do. Um, and I'm not knocking Trump's war with China. You know, he's having a conversation that needed to be had for sure. All I'm saying is be very, very careful with all commodities right now because there's great uncertainty. And, you know, if you drink the Kool-Aid, you believe the guru, um, it's, it's possible to lose a lot of money here. Now, that having been said, um, if you can position yourself for this, right? You know, if, I don't know which way it's going to go, but there's things you can do whichever way it's going to go. Uh, and one thing is to realize that in a, in a topsy-turvy world like this, safe haven assets, they may fluctuate, uh, but people are going to want safe haven assets. And if, if things go really bad in the economy, the global economy this year, you know, your precious metals are going to do really well. If they don't, they're not going to zero. So there's asymmetrical risk there. And I, I do recommend that everybody have a significant allocation to precious metals and speculate, of course, on the best stocks that can add leverage to that. On the commodities writ large, the industrial metals and oil and other things like that, frankly, I'm in a wait and see mode. And I want to know with some clarity uh, how the U.S. and China are going to work things out and okay, maybe I'll miss out. Like if I make the right guess, and it would be a guess, it would not be a rational speculation based on a trend visibly in motion. It would be a guess. If I guess right now that this whole China thing is going to blow up and therefore I should short industrial metals, I make a ton of money. Or if I guess that it's all going to be resolved, we're going to have a great deal and, and China's going to boom and they're all going to go up, I can make a great deal of money. But if I guess wrong, I can lose a lot of money. I'm willing to give up that potential for early gains to wait until I see, because once that starts, that trend goes one way or the other, there'll be plenty of time to make money. That trend's not going to stop in a day. So mm -hmm. I'd rather wait to see which way the coin lands and then go with the future of that outcome. Now, there's one thing, and this is what I started with, and I, I wanted to say what I'm not sure about first so that people understand I'm not just a cheerleader of saying, oh, this is great. I'm extremely bullish on the uranium space. And a lot of people, you know, uranium is weird, or maybe even something they don't like, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, who wants, you know, Fukushima, uranium, ah, don't talk to me about uranium. But the fact is that it cannot be substituted. It is necessary for the world today, and it cannot be mined at current prices. After Fukushima, the Japanese shut down all the reactors, and there were a lot of utilities sitting on all this uranium, refined uranium they didn't need. They started selling it into the market. And uranium prices dropped way below, uh, not just averages or whatever, but way, way below the cost of production. So mines are shutting down, supply is shutting. This is one of those things where 
again, as Rick likes to say, you know, low prices are the cure for low prices. And as we were saying a little bit earlier, when you see something like this, a market overreacting, like it's simply not sustainable. There can't be uranium mining at current prices. And there has to be uranium mining. The U.S. depends for 20% of its electricity on nuclear power plants. And yes, they want to phase them out, but they still need them. And even Japan, you know, they're an island without so many uh, energy resources. Even they understand. And they've started restarting their reactors. They have plans to restart 30 reactors. So they're not selling anymore. Uh, but meanwhile, the supply has been curtailed. And this is very rare. And I don't often do this. But I sincerely see this as, in the near term, unevenly with fluctuations, but pretty much a one-way street. I have never been so convinced of a bullish speculative investment premise as I am right now of uranium. And on top of that, you know, we have this situation in the United States where uh, uranium producers ask the Department of Commerce under Section 232 to research the U.S.'s dependence on foreign uranium. And it turns out the U.S. imports almost all of its uranium. There's very little production in the U.S. And we need that for, as I say, 20% of the power grid as is. So they have just handed a report on the U.S. dependence on imported uranium to Donald Trump. And if it was any other president, I would say, who knows what's going to happen. But this is Donald Trump. This is Mr. America first. It's very rare for me to say this sort of thing, but I, I sincerely cannot imagine him looking at the U.S. depending for you know, a large chunk of its power grid depending on imports. I mean, he's already slapped tariffs on Canadian lumber and stuff. It seems entirely consistent with his character that he will do something to boost U.S. uranium production. And that, if it happens, will light a fire under the U.S. uranium place. And if it doesn't happen, we have everything else I was just saying. The fundamentals are so strong that I'm bullish on uranium anyway. So you have, a, instead of a win-lose, you have a, a win-win-more situation here. And I'm extremely Perfect. bullish on uranium. And of course, I invite everybody to sign up at independentspeculator.com to read more about that and see where I'm putting my own money in this. Uh, but I'll give you that for free. This is the one thing right now this year, as much as I love gold and silver, cobalt and the energy uh, minerals, this is the thing I'm most sure of this year. Very, very uh, interesting. I appreciate you sharing that. You touched on the economy a little bit. What are you seeing out there? What are, what are you keeping your eyes on? Uh, at the moment, sure. Uh, it's it's a you know we could have multiple conversations on just that. Uh, my concern, and again, the coin could go either side. My concern is that there are real signs of deceleration globally in the economy. Uh, China is stimulating again. There are some encouraging numbers coming out of that, but there's still scary numbers within that, right? You know, China's GDP beat in Q1. But auto sales are still in the tank. You know, double-digit declines in auto sales month over month, you know, from last year. Mm -hmm. Those are very significant numbers. Uh, the U.S. beat on GDP by a very wide margin. But you look at those numbers and, you know, the, if, if you follow John Williams at Shadowstat, he's very good at dissecting those. But the, the numbers, they're influenced by things, you know, one-off things and things that may not reflect the, the reality in the underlying economy, and, and particularly the unemployment rate. You know, all the discouraged workers that would like to work, but they don't count. Uh, there are a lot of things that are not being counted by these numbers or, or, or me. You know, I run my own business now or people in the gig economy. If suddenly we're out of work, there's no unemployment claim. Right. Right? So a lot of these numbers they in, in the U.S. and China in particular are starting to look up. And it, 
never say never. So maybe the politicians kick the can down the road again. You know, in 2008, I have to say, I did not see how they could paper that over. But by gum, they did, right? And they, they kicked that down the road far longer than I imagined possible. Uh, so I don't want to sit here and tell your audience, oh, yeah, you know, the you know what is about to hit the fan. It may be. I mean, like I say, there's signs of weakness. We could see uh, very serious uh, worldwide economic uh, downturn by the end of this year. In fact, John Williams is calling for that. He's calling for recession in the United States by the end of the year, the exact opposite of what the numbers would seem to indicate. And if anybody would know, it would be him. Um, yep. You know, on the other hand, I remember John Williams at a Casey conference, you know, maybe eight or 10 years ago, you know, predicting hyperinflation and all this stuff. So, or, or Doug himself, uh, I'm, I don't want to be in the crystal ball business. I, I don't know how that's going to go, but that's my take is that right now we're in a place where if the powers that be have reached the end of their rope and can no longer kick the can down the road, we're going to see some fireworks very soon. But not quite willing to put all of my money yet on the bet that they have lost, you know, that ability to control it and that they're end of the rope. They've surprised me before. I want to see their fingers slipping off the end of the rope before I say, yep, oh, this is it. Yep, absolutely. And as you mentioned, the crystal ball business, it's a tough business to be in. Um, but one of the things that, that, that I also see is, you know, I, sometimes I think like it's markets, there's such a disconnect sometimes with the reality for most people already in the US to where the markets are right now. Some of the numbers that I just see, um, and I had this discussion with someone the other day, but it's like, um, you see that's was it was it something like 60% of US families can't break, get, you know, 400 or is it a $1,000 right. together for an emergency? Yeah, Right. Yes, exactly. And you see the lack of savings for retirement that the, the baby boomers have and so forth. And you look at those numbers and going, you know, there might be, we, we, we might never be in a situation again where the markets and what, what the actual numbers out there reflect the actual reality that most people are dealing with on a daily right. basis. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And another person who's very good at analyzing these things is, is Peter Schiff. If you listen to his podcast. Yeah the numbers when they come out. And every time I listen to him, I, I agree with what he's saying. Almost, I don't know, 95%. That's about as good as it gets. You know, he, he's very clever and he's very good at, at pulling these things apart. Um, but, you know, he's also been making some calls that people have been waiting for a long time on. And, and again, uh, I get it. I, I agree. Um, maybe my biggest difference with Peter is that he thinks that the Fed won't be able to you know, explode the balance sheet to 10 trillion or whatever and, and have the dollar not tank, that people will call BS on that, people won't believe it this time, and the dollar will tank. I'm not sure that Peter fully appreciates how bad the currencies of other countries are and mm -hmm. how people in Latin America, for example, you know, they know the dollar's shaky. They know the U.S. government, you know, they're no fans of the U.S. government and they don't believe that, you know, we do everything right up here necessarily. But they know their governments are worse. Right. <laughs> so I agree with Peter's analysis, except to that point of people are going to dump the dollar the next time, uh, you know, the you know what hits the fan. They may or may not. Or, you know, the you know what might be hitting their fans, too. And the dollar may be the, you know, the, the least dirty shirt in the hamper, as, as the, the guys are saying now. So it may not seem to tank compared to the other things. Now, purchasing power is a whole other thing. Hence, precious metals. You know the drill.
Yeah, exactly. Even the SDR, where the dollar is the the majority of basically makes makes up of that basket of cu- currencies, right? So even something with that, um, I you know that that's kind of what I'm seeing as well. That it, it's not it's yeah. not it's not going anywhere. And sometimes I just think with the financialization of markets and all of this manipulation, that I mean, uh, again, that's a really interesting point. Sorry to jump in again. Yeah, yeah. Just think about it. If Everybody's going to hell in a handbasket at the same time. The handbasket's going to look pretty stable. Like right. that basket of currencies is everybody's more or less, you know, pegging each other, deflating together, whatever. Yep. That basket is going to look, oh, look, there's not a big problem. You know, the dollar is relatively stable to the euro. You know, the Chinese are finally cooperating. Things will look by that financial, you know, measure will look okay. But if you look out the window to the real world, you'll find real assets are telling you something else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially the price, the prices that folks would pay for survival, you know, clothing and food and, and a roof over their head. So, no, absolutely. It's, it's very interesting to see where this is all going because we, you know, as you mentioned, for the last 10 years, there's been a lot of folks waiting for this to happen, right? Start to rip off the steam. Uh, and it's, we're, we're still much, pretty much in, in, in good shape. A um, couple of other trends that, that you've identified out there that, that you're looking at and writing about um, that you care to share that we should keep an eye on, uh, especially as as 2019 is already, I mean, what are we, <laughs> well, it's, it's way off to the races. We're almost halfway through. Okay. Well, I'll give you one more thing here. Um, and this isn't a trend. This is more like a, an overlooked gem, if you will. There's been a a conventional wisdom in the resource space that um, you know the big money is made when a company makes a discovery, right? The stock goes up. You've probably seen what is called the Lassonde curve, where a share price goes up in the discovery phase, goes down in the boring engineering phase, goes up again to production, and then you don't know what happens, right? The mine depletes, or they make another discovery, it goes up. We don't know what happens. But the big money, the 10 baggers, are in that discovery phase. And that's true. I mean, that, I have lived this, I have seen this, I have bagged my own 10 baggers based on a discovery taking a penny stock to dimes or, or you know, a sub-dollar stock to multiple dollars. This really does happen. Um, the problem with that is that the, it's unknowable. I mean, even the best in the business, even the best geologists, even my mentors, you know, Doug Casey, Rick Wool, and those guys, nobody knows who's going to make a discovery. If you knew that, it would be priced in advance, right? And, and the odds are something like, you know, one in 300 of, of even when you get to the drilling stage actually results in any kind of significant discovery at all. And that's not even counting all the prospects that never get drilled. The odds are very long against. So that's the beginning part of the curve. And here's my, my personal contribution to the resource space is I started asking, okay, well, what about the second part of the curve? What is the gain from the boring engineering phase to production? And I asked, and nobody knew. I asked, Doug, what, what typically is that? I don't know, you know, maybe 20%, 10 20%. The idea there is, well, everybody can see who's building a mine. So that will be priced in. There are gains, but it can't be that much because everybody knows that it's happening. So as far as I know, I'm the first one to actually collect data on this. And I, I, I started this back in my Casey days. I have redone the research now that I'm on my own as the independent speculator. There are more than 110 cases now of first-time mine builders making that transition from a construction decision to first pour. And it doesn't count if they're already in production somewhere else. You know, we're talking about transition from nothing to something. And it turns out, you know, this is going to sound crazy. This is going to sound hard to believe. You know, I didn't believe it when I first did this. And then I redid it and I redid it. And these numbers are solid. Um, 
But the average gain from a construction decision to first pour is on the order of a double. It is just slightly over 100% in my current data set. And that's phenomenal. Okay, a double isn't a 10-bagger, but here's the kicker. 95% of the companies that start building a mine succeed at building it. So you're not talking about hundreds or thousands of one against on a discovery. You're talking about something that will probably happen. And, and of course, not all these have happy endings. 95% succeed in building the mines, but let's, let's look back, you know, win or lose. About 70% of the companies that start building their mine have a positive outcome for shareholders by the time they have that first pour. And some are very high, some are not so high. The top performers in this, the top five cases, they average around 700% gains. Not quite a 10-bagger, but it's on the order of a 10-bagger. Uh, some of them lose money. Now, here's, here's the thing that I bring up because I talked about the uncertainty. I talked about not knowing how markets will go and why I said this is not a trend. This isn't a trend. It's just a little niche uh, strategy in the market. And here's the thing. It works in a bear market. Not as well. The average of the first-time mine builders from construction decision to first pour, uh, only a couple dozen of them, but we found people building mines in bear markets. Usually they start before it turns into a bear market. The average is around 30% gains. So much lower, but still on average positive. And of course, more of them failed during the bear market, but the average was still positive in a bear market. So this tells me that if I don't know what's going to happen, and right now, I don't know what's going to happen with commodities writ large. This is one area that still works, still delivers for shareholders, even in a bear market. Not as much, but it delivers. And if market turns bullish, it delivers a lot more. So you subtract out the bear market ones and the average of the ones who build during the bull market is more like 150%. So it's, it's quite a bit more. So, um, you know, researching the right companies, I have my own theories on what makes for the top five, you know, those really high performers up there. Uh, this is a very central to my work right now is fine tuning this, what makes for the best place in this space. But the idea, cats out of the bag, I published on this before realizing how really incredible it was, um, and it's out there now. It's the, the pre-production sweet spot in my Casey days. They called it the golden runway, uh, and it's, it's made money for a lot of people. And that is a place that people interested in the resource space now can look to deploying capital without feeling that they know necessarily what's going to happen to the sector. Fantastic. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Uh, now, core message in our shows to leave our families, communities, and the world better than we found it by passing down a mindset, values, and principles to future generations, not just money. So if you cannot pass on any money to future generations, and we're only allowed to pass on three principles to them to build wealth and achieve happiness and success, what would they be? I think the number one principle, and you'll, you'll recognize this from what I've written about speculation, I think the number one principle has to be not just know thyself, but be honest with thyself. And that may sound very abstract or philosophical, or what has this got to do with amassing great wealth? But think about what we talked about, the, the, the necessary discipline to be a successful speculator. If you kid yourself about whether you can take the heat when you put a significant amount of money for you into some position and it goes down, like let's say I'm right about uranium, but it corrects in the near term. Yep. That wouldn't mean anything for the overall trend. But your shares could go down significantly in the near term before the eventual payday. If you can't handle that, if that will make you panic, you will have bought high and sold low. The opposite of the formula for success. So if you know you're emotional, <laughs> 
you know, maybe you need to be, take a step back and, and do something less risky or something you have more control of. And if you kid yourself about this, you'll set yourself up for failure. And I, I think this is actually a lesson that applies in many walks of life. You know, if, if you know yourself, you know your limitations, you know what you're good at. You know, don't be ashamed. You know, it's, it's as unrealistic to have an inflated ego as to have a, an underestimated ego. You know, know your strengths, but know your weaknesses. Know what you can and cannot do and play to that. I, I think this is something that a lot of people sell themselves short. Or, or they or they think too highly of themselves. Either one is wrong. Uh, honesty with yourself, I think, is a, is a key to success in many things. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Very, very, very powerful stuff. Where can our listeners learn more about you? Where can they follow you? And where can they stay informed of all of the projects that you're involved with? Sure. Thanks for asking that question. So the website is independentspeculator.com. We have a free weekly digest that goes out with links to the various um, blog posts and things that I've written, interviews that I've done. It also has original content. I, it's basically a, week at, a weekly market or what's important today kind of update. Not a conversation with Casey, you know, a conversation with myself perhaps and my audience, uh, but that is free. And, and here's an important part of it is it really is spam free. If you sign up for that, you will not suddenly find you know, some advertisement or five of them in your inbox every day saying that you have to sign up now for this thing or you'll miss the 10,000% gains. We're not like that. You know, I, I want to offer people a square deal. And, and frankly, I don't want to convince people to sign up for my paid letter. I want them to see it and say, oh, that's a good deal. If I convince you and you, if I trick you into it or if I twist your arm, you're not going to stay with me for long. And you probably won't stay the trade and you'll end up losing money. Whereas if you see what I do and you want to know how I'm investing my own money, then you can say, okay, well, I'll sign up for the paid letter, square deal. And by the way, no discounts, no special offers. Don't mention MC and get your 50% off. That's not the way I do business, right? I think I have a lot of value to offer my readers. And, And the paid letter, by the way, it's exactly what I said. It's not just I disclose that I have invested in some of these companies. The whole idea of the paid letter is... These are companies that I'm so convinced are great speculations that I'm willing to put my money into it, 100% of them. If I, if I don't put my own money into it, I don't write about it in, in the letter. Um, so there's the free service, and I will not spam you. I will periodically invite you very politely to upgrade to the paid service. Uh, but if you want to keep up to date with what I'm thinking, I will tell you in the free service, oh, I've changed my mind about uranium, time to sell. Or... China's booming, it's time to go along, all the industrial metals, whatever. That sort of market analysis, I give that away for free, and I hope it profits you. That's my evil plan here, my evil speculator plan. I hope to be so useful that I help you make money, and therefore, you feel that it's worth your while to join me on the paid letter. Fantastic. Well, this has been a blast. I've really, really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your journey and your knowledge and providing so much value for my listeners, Lobo. Thank you, MC. It's been fun. Life settlement investments have allowed financial and banking institutions to not only buy their equity contractually, but also diversify their capital from any economic market and geopolitical risk. It's been part of the billion dollar blueprint followed by institutional investors. And if you're an accredited investor, you can also now participate in this vehicle with enormous growth potential. You can watch an informational webinar presented by one of the premier organizations providing life settlement investments, Benumbra Solutions, 
at cashflowninja.com forward slash life settlements. Thank you again for joining me on the Cashflow Ninja. If you like what you hear and appreciate what we're trying to build here, please subscribe, rate, and write a review for our show on iTunes and share our show with family, friends, and your network. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can sign up for our newsletter at cashflowninja.com. I want to thank you for spending your most precious resource with me today, your time. Until next time, my friend, live a life of passion and purpose on your terms. This presentation is for educational and informational purposes only. The information being presented and considered does not consider your particular financial objectives or situation, and it does not make personalized recommendations. This material is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified tax and legal advisor or other qualified professionals, and you should not use the information in place of a customized consultation with a licensed professional regarding your specific personal financial objectives, situation, and needs. We believe the information provided is reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness, or completeness.